This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Uh, okay, Rabbi Sai. Uh, Parshas Toldois. I remember three years ago, uh, Parshas Toldois, a few days before Wednesday night, I was preparing this big shir called The Ten Commandments of Raising Children. And uh, the reason why three years ago I was preparing that shir is because um, my wife was due. And I knew I had to really prepare early because, uh, you know, you never know, I might lose my Tuesday. Tuesday is the most important day of the week for me. I prepare the Wednesday night cheer. And sure enough, um, Baruch Hashem, I had just about finished the cheer. And my wife's like, okay, I think we got to go. I said, one second, give me a couple more minutes. You could ask her. I said, I just got to finish preparing the cheer. This was the round one. And I said, uh, okay, I came home after the cheer was complete. We went to the hospital. Baruch Hashem. Shlomo Zalman was born three years ago today. Wow. Yeah, thank you. And Yeah, yeah. And um, so that was what we called the Ten Commandments of Raising Children, Part 1. But the whole concept of having a shear about Ten Commandments, really I got from uh, somebody who I learned a great deal from, uh, Victor Miller, Zechazak Lebracha, who had his famous shear called the Ten Commandments of Marriage. I don't know if uh, the Oilam here, I'm, uh, yes, I'm here a year, but the Oilam is not ready to hear that one yet. But uh, the concept of breaking something down into Ten Commandments, I learned from him. Okay, how do you have the right to say Ten Commandments? Only the Rebbe makes Ten Commandments. But we see we have already, uh, we have a paradigm. We have, um, we have the concept already. So we know by the Luchas, there are also Luchas Shniyas. So even if you have Ten Commandments, you could always have a second set. So this has nothing to do with the first ten I do recommend, uh, if anyone has an opportunity, check out on Torah anytime, the uh, first Ten Commandments of Raising Children. And th- these are going to be um, another Ten Commandments. These ten are ideas that I picked that are not my own ideas. These are not uh, ideas that I invented. And these are not typical concepts and typical ideas. I try to pick ten concepts that are maybe a little bit what we call out of the box, a little bit innovative, maybe ideas we would not necessarily think of, but are based in authentic sources. Okay, so with that introduction, let us begin. We begin with the Me'iri. The Me'iri wrote a commentary to Perkei Avais, like he wrote for the rest of Shas. It's called Beis HaBechira. And the Me'iri talks about, in his Hakdama to Perkei Avais, the chain of Mesaira going from Moshe Rabbeinu all the way till his time. And he talks about an individual by the name of Rav Achoi Goin, or also called Rav Acha Mishivcha. He is the author of the Shiltois. Uh, the Shiltois, of course, is something like a halachic, midrashic commentary to the Chumash. The Nitziv wrote a commentary to the Shiltois called Emek She'ela. And uh, the Me'iri says about this, this perosh, this work called Shiltois, that it includes most of the halachis of Shas. And it's a, it's a chibor, he says, that is roy to rely on it in Baroiv Devarov, in most of his words. In other words, this is a very authoritative, authentic set called the Shiltois. Okay? And the Ravachoi, Ravacha Mishivcha, passed away in the year 4,512. But then the Miri is not finished with uh, explaining to us what, what, what is the Shiltois. You have to understand the Shiltois was revolutionary. Because up until his time, the, those Rishonim or Ga'inim who wrote halachic works wrote it in groups of halacha. So what they would write are, they wrote Hechaz Brachos, Hechaz Tefillah, Hechaz Kriyashema, Hechaz Dalad Minim, Hechaz Sukkah, Hechaz Pesach. 
it was all grouped in order of various halachas, like the Tor, like the Shulchan Aruch, like the Rambam. The Shultais was a trailblazer. In what way was he a trailblazer? He was the first to write halacha based on the parsha of the week. In other words, until, until then, you know, you don't mix Chumash and Halacha. When you learn Chumash, you learn Chumash. When you learn Halacha, you learn Halacha. But to write Halachas on the Parshiyas, that was like innovative. That was something that nobody ever did before. After the Shultas came along, it became standard, like the Sefer HaChinuch and many other works of Rishonim wrote Halachas on the Parshiyas. But the Shultas invented this, this system. And the question is why? You know, he basically broke the protocol. He broke the tradition. So the Me'iri writes a, a Dover Nifla. Look at number two. Fikibalnu Kabbalah Brura. We have a clear tradition. Aravacha. Shahoyaloi Ben. He had a son. Beloi Hoya Libai Chafes Liois Shoiked Klau. The kid had no interest in learning. Now it doesn't say he didn't really like to learn or learning wasn't his thing so much. He had absolutely no interest in learning. So the father's stuck. What's the father going to do? So he decided to sort of revolutionize the learning process. Instead of teaching halacha, presenting halacha in the order of different groups of halacha, he presented halacha on the parashiyos of the week. Why? For his kid. I Nobody ever did that before, and it was unheard of, and it was sort of a breach in protocol. That's You got to do what you got to do. In other words, when it comes to chinuch habanim, you got to do what works, even if it's unconventional, even if it's out of the box, even if nobody ever did it before. If your kid needs to stand on his head while he learns, so put the kid on his head and let him learn that way. If the kid needs to jump up and down while he learns, whatever it takes. No kid ever did that before, no yeshiva ever did it before. Well, your kid is going to do it. In this class, that's what's going to be done. If we, in other words, the first principle in raising children is you got to do what works for the kid. Even if it was never done, and people are going to look at you like you're off your off the wall. You got to do what works. This is the Yisoy that we learned from the Meiri. It's the Yisoy that we learned from Avachai Gain. He basically revolutionized the learning process. You know, they say now some kids learn visually. So if your kid needs a picture of everything, you get you make sure he has a picture. And if a kid needs uh, um, integrates information through his ear or through audio uh, through his uh, hearing, then. That's how you need it to have it presented to him. So that is commandment number one. Do what works. Okay? That sounds simple enough. Okay. The number two, commandment number two, the second ingredient in raising successful children. And this is a very frightening idea. This is an idea that you need to be a God of Israel to derive it. Because... In the upbringing of Yaakov and Esav, we do not find that Yitzchak and Rivka are criticized in the way they brought up their children. Or at least at first glance, we don't find Rashi or the Gemara criticizing Yitzchak and Rivka for bringing up their children. And you got to wonder here, here you have two kids. It's not like uh, Yitzchak and Yishmael who had different mothers. You know, Yitzchak had uh, Sarah and Yishmael has Hagar. You have two kids, they have the same father, they have the same mother, they went to the same yeshiva, and one kid is, you know, Tzadik Yisoy Elam, his face is on the Kisei HaKavayt, and the other kid is, is one of the biggest Risham of all time. So the question is, how did that happen? So most of us would say, oh, this is a classic case of, not nurture, but nature, right? They, you know, there's always the, the, 
the age-old question, is it nature or nurture? So if I would stop a thousand Jews on the street corner, they would all say, this is a case of nature and not nurture. Yaakov had good tendencies, and Esav had bad tendencies. Wrong! Wrong. This is 100% nurture and not nature. How's that? So here, here we have possibly the most famous comment of Rav Shamshin Rafal Hirsch, and we're going to read it in the English, even though I'm sure you know he didn't write it, not in the new Hebrew that came out, and not in the English either. It was written in his native German. But Rav Shamshin Rafal Hirsch has a rather novel and perhaps nowadays um, controversial understanding of of the difference between how Yaakov and Esau turned out. The Pasuk says, Vayigdulu Hanarim. Look at number three, the kids grew up. Vayhi Esau ish yodeat sayid. Esau was a man who knew how to trap. Ish saw the man of the field. Vayakov ish tam, and Yaakov was a wholesome man. Yoshev oihalam. One who sat in the tents. Meaning Esau was a hunter, and Yaakov sat in the base of Medrash. <coughs> Sounds like this fundamental difference in their activities and personalities was not clear until they grew up. As long as they were young, it wasn't clear that they had these inclinations and these tendencies. Look at Rashi. I'm going to read to you Rashi the way we all read Rashi, and then you'll see Rabshanshin Falhersh has a completely different way to read Rashi. Says Rashi, Vayigdulu hanarim vayhi esav, kozman shahoyu ketanim, lahoyu nikarim demaseim. When they were young, their actions were not recognizable. In other words, when they, when they were five years old or eight years old, they both went to uh, yeshiva together, and by recess they both did the same thing. It's not like when one was eight years old, by recess Esau was like shooting bows and arrows at you know, animals that were passing by, and Yaakov sat in the corner in the gym with his little mishnayas. When they were eight years old, they were doing the exact same thing. Nobody was careful with them what their natures were. When they became 13, this one separated to his shul. In other words, Yaakov went to the Beit HaMedrash. The Zepirish, and Esav went to serve idols. So the simple reading of Rashi is that when they were young, nobody realized or recognized any difference. It was not apparent. It was not noticeable. And then when they grew up, all of a sudden, Yaakov was seen as the great Talmud Chacham and Esav was seen as a hunter. Rav Shamshin Rafal Hirsch sees in this Rashi the criticism and the critique of Yaakov, of Yitzchak and Rivka in the way they brought up Yaakov and Esau. And that is, not that it wasn't recognizable when they were young because you couldn't tell, but rather their parents did not put enough emphasis and effort to try to recognize the slumbering differences that exist in their personality. In other words, had Rivka and Yitzchak been more attuned to their children, and you have to know, we are not allowed to find criticism with the Avais. Even for someone like Rav Shamshin Falhirsh, it's considered somewhat, um, it, it sort of raises your eyebrows. How is he allowed to do such a thing, other than the fact this is how he's reading Rashi. In other words, it's considered inappropriate. When you hear, let's say, um, a scholar will analyze the Avais and then attribute his own deficiency to the Avais, we consider that apikarsis. We're not, what? Controversial. We're not entitled to do such a thing. But here you have a God of Israel, Rosh is a Goyin Oilam, and it's, he's not offering his own um, conjecture here. Here's, he's reading Rashi. And the way he understands Rashi is like this. And that is, everybody knows, 
the famous rule in Chinuch is Chanoich Lenar Al Pidarka. You have to train a kid according to his nature. Says Rav Shamshir Falhurst, that means like this. That means when a kid is two, three, four, five, six years old, and this is not really done, a parent needs to be attuned with a microscope. What are the tendencies of my kid? What, are, what is the nature of my kid? What are his abilities? What is he inclined to do? Yak, Yitzchak and Rivka should have seen that Esau was a very colorful personality. He was a go-getter. He was someone who's interested in the, in the experiences of life. He was somebody who was out there in the world, somebody who wanted to see what's going on in the world. But the problem was, you know what they did? They sent both boys to the same yeshiva. And how often are we guilty of saying, well, you know, my oldest went to the yeshiva, so obviously I'm going to send my second kid because, first of all, it's cheaper. Second of all, it's just more convenient. I know the rabbeim already. I know how to work the system. I know how to deal with the administrator. So I'm just going to send my kids through the same. I went there and my father went there. And basically, says Rosham Shalom Rafal Hirsch, to do what you did to kid A with kid B is criminal. You're going to destroy them. You can't treat every kid the same way. The problem with the chinuch that Yitzchak and Rivka gave, again, I would never say such a thing, this is how Rav Shamshel is, is, is interpreting Rashi, is that they didn't recognize that you can't put Esav in the same classroom that you put Yaakov in. Yeah, Yaakov went to the A-track, Yaakov went to the shear that goes two hours straight without a break, Yaakov went to the shear where they tell them you have to sit and learn your whole life. There is no way Esav was becoming a Rav, a Rosh Hashiva, a Rebbe. Esav needed to be out in the world, in the world of commerce. Esav needed to be out in the, whether it's the business world, or he needed to travel, or he needed to be a, a merchant, or he needed to be a judge, or he needed to be a doctor. He needed to be something that Yaakov would never be. But they were not able to detect what Rav Shonshon calls the slumbering differences in personality. And they basically said, look, they both come from, from Yitzchak, they both come from Rivka, they're identical twins, they probably have the same personality. So if Yaakov went to Rabbi Friedman and Rabbi Pfefferkorn and Rabbi, you know, Rabbi uh, Teitelbaum, so then we're going to put Esav in the exact same class. And if Yaakov is going to sit and learn for indefinitely, then Esav needs to also says of Shanshan Falhirsh, they destroyed Esav. Because a kid who doesn't have the inclination and doesn't have the talent and ability to be a Talmud Chacham, then all he's thinking every moment, every waking moment is that for me, Judaism has no relevance. Because Judaism is relevant if you're going to be a scholar and you're going to meditate and you're going to involve the intellect. But I'm not such an intellectual guy. I'm a man of action. I'm a man of activity. I'm a man of creativity. This is not my realm. And they basically um, gave Esau the message that Judaism and the tradition of Avram Avinu is relevant if you're able to be an Avraham Avinu or a Yitzhak Avinu and sit in your tent all day. And if you're not able to sit in the tent all day, then this is not something that will resonate with you. And Esau was sitting there in the classroom thinking to himself, I can't wait to get out of the system and throw it all away. But had they recognized that Esau was not going to be what Yaakov was, they would have nurtured him and harnessed his energies to be maybe a world leader or a world uh, um, emperor, a world... Um, you need soldiers. No, the Rav Shanfal Hirsch says 
that Yaakov's vision of Kal Yisrael was not to have 12 people named Levi sitting around his deathbed when he said Shema. 12 people who sat all, all day in the base of Medrash. Yaakov Avinu's vision was there's going to be Yehuda who's going to be a king and a minister and there's going to be a Zavulan who's going to be a sea merchant and there's going to be an usher who's going to be a baker and there's going to be uh, Reuven and Shimon who are going to be scholars and there's going to be various tribes and going to be Dun who's going to be a warrior and God who's going to be a soldier. And that was Yaakov's vision. In other words, says of Shanson Hirsch, Judaism is very easy. There's one goal. The goal is to sanctify the name of Hashem. But there are many ways to get there. And says of Shanson Hirsch, somebody who spends their time working out in the world in an honest way, in a courteous way, and sanctifies the name of Hashem, is no less than somebody who spends their time all day in the Beis HaMedrash studying Torah. They are all loyal soldiers in the collective nation of Kali And what area should a person try to sanctify Shem's name? In the area that he has inclination, in the area that he has ability. And Esau did not have any inclination to spend all day in the base of Medrash, nor did he have that ability, says Rosh Hashanah Hirsch. Now, yes, this is not the uh, approach of uh, today's yeshiva system. And there might be reasons for that, and I'm not here to challenge the current system. I'll leave that for people much greater than myself. But the concept is that you can't make a kid what they're not. And if you try to do that, you're going to destroy them. And Yaakov and uh, what Yitzhak and Rivka did to Esav, and again, it obviously was in a very subtle way, and we have to say to ourselves, if they didn't detect Esav's slumbering proclivities and inclinations, then if we were there, we certainly would not have. But on some minute le- level, according to Rav and Falhurst, they're held accountable for what we call wholesale chinuch. Yeah, send them all through the same track. Send them all to the same camp. Have, they should all have the same teachers. No. Why, why should they all have the same teachers? Send them to different schools. Send them to different camps if that's what they need. If it's working, there's nothing wrong if they go to the same yeshiva, and there's nothing wrong if they have the same rabbim, as long as that's what's good for the individual child. And that is rule number two. Rule number two is, a parent really has to be very observant, and watch very carefully, and be very attuned to an individual child's personality, inclination, proclivity, ability, talent, and try to harness and channel the particular needs of the child in a direction that they could be successful in life. And it might not be a direction that you would want for yourself or you would want for them, but it doesn't matter really, and we'll see about that. It's what's good for the child. Okay, well, Sarah threw Yishmael out of the house. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's rule number two. Clearly, Rifka and Levi, before they were born, that they're two separate nations. Yeah. So. You know, there are many Perushim that they had. Yes, Chazal are saying that they had inborn inclinations from the time that they were young, but Chaz, but the Pasuk says that it wasn't recognizable until they turned 13 years old. In other words, even though in utero already there were some tendencies that each one displayed, but to the human eye, that was not recognizable until they turned 13 years old. Okay, so that's rule number two. 
that is the rule of Rav Shem Now he does say that yes, a legitimate path of service of Hashem is to be a zavulan, to serve Hashem as a merchant, and a legitimate path of Avodas Hashem is to be an usher and to be a don and to be a yosef. And there are various trades and there are various professions, and they're all kulam ahuvim, kulam berurim. However, we must say that whatever trade you are, whether you're a doctor or a lawyer, an accountant or a plumber or an electrician, learning Torah has to be a significant part of every Jew's day. No question. Learning Torah is not only for rabbis, rabbanim, rosh yeshiva, every single Jew, no matter what you do for a living, needs to devote significant time to learning. But that doesn't mean that they need to spend their entire day learning. That's not for everybody. It's interesting... You know, I gotta get the trip in, right? I'm entitled to mention at least one time, right? So, uh, we were in Morocco, and, uh, I didn't, basically, I had to speak about the Baba Sali. And, uh, I didn't know so much about him. And I, I did some research on the Baba Sali's ancestor, the Abir Yaakov. Abir Yaakov, one of the early Abu Khateras. So, the Abir Yaakov has a beautiful, uh, Dvar Torah. We are two, two merchants came to the Abir Yaakov. They said, you know, Rabbi, give us a bracha that we should, we should uh, make a good living. We should make a uh, ample living. So he said, uh, "What do you need my bracha for?" It says, "Elu dvarim shadam ochel perasem ben lazah hashkamas beis hamedrash shachros biarvus." So he said, "Well, of course, we daven shachros, we daven marav, we go to shul early, we stay late." So he said, "No, hashkamas beis hamedrash means to learn." So he said, "Come on, Rabbi, learning is for Yisachar, learning is for Levi, but we're zavulans, we're merchants. Learning's not for us." Says Abir Yaakov, no, you're making a mistake. More than anybody else, the Zavulans have to learn. Because it says, Zavulan l'chayf yamim yishkoin. Ein yam ela yama talmud. Zavulan, even though they're out doing business, making deals, but they always have to be by the edge of the yam, by the edge of the sea. The yam is the yama talmud. So the Zavulans of the world have even perhaps a greater obligation to be involved in learning. Yes, but again, the, to be all solely involved in spending time for learning, that's not necessarily everybody's obligation. Okay, so that is rule number two. Rule number two is a parent really needs to be attuned to the what we call the slumbering inclinations. Every kid, you can have a five-year-old kid. Ah, you know, Kananahara, Baruch Hashem, I have a bunch of boys. You know, one of them, you threw them a ball from the time they're two years old, they'll jump up and make a catch. And another one, you could throw the ball now and, you know, Ball is not for them. That's, that's the way it is. Every kid is different. So, I have a lot of good stories, but I'm going to spare them. Okay. That is rule number two. Rule number three. This is a very uh, important rule, and it's something that everybody needs to work on. The Pasuk says, Vayehav Yitzchak es Esav kitzayed b'sif. Yitzchak loved Esav because... His trappings were in his mouth. In other words, he hunted for a, for a Yitzchak. For Rivka, he had a Yaakov. Rivka loved Yaakov. Says Rav Shamshin Falhersh, the Torah is identifying something that had a very poisonous effect on the upbringing of Yaakov and Esau. And that is, they were favorites. One was daddy's favorite, and one was mommy's favorite. And you cannot have favorites in the family. It's harmful to the one who is not the favorite, and it's more harmful to the one that is the favorite, says of Shanshan Falhersh. Now it's interesting, says of Shanshan Falhersh, and this is like a brilliant thought, 
He said we could explain very rationally why Esav was the favorite of Yitzchak and Yaakov was the favorite of Rivka. Why is that? You think Yitzchak was always somebody who sat in his tent and never went anywhere and just focused on Avoida? Says of Shanshin Falhirsh, very reasonably, when he sat there on that altar on the Akedah and he saw his father about to slaughter him and he saw how fleeting life was and how quick he could easily be in the next world, at that point in time, he sort of confined himself and to, he withdrew from the hustle bustle of the world to live in quiet proximity and to live in meditation. It was the Akedah that sort of bound up Yitzchak's tendencies to be someone who was always Ba'ayal. <coughs> However, he may have had a lot of ability and inclination to be out. And when he sees his son Esav, who has all that energy and all that interest and all of the talent to be someone successful in the realm of the, of the world, he was drawn to that. He figured maybe he could, he could train Esav to be what he never was. Okay, this is, a, you know, very innovative thinking. As opposed to Rivka, think about where Rivka grew up. She grew up with a bunch of crooks, a bunch of deceitful <laughs> businessmen. She grew up out in the world, dreaming of, you know, the perfect child that she would have who would sit in the base Hamedrish to be, you know, a tzaddik Yisraelim. And then she has a little Yaakov, you know, a little tzaddik. Yaakov was her favorite. But whatever the reason is, a parents cannot let preference affect the way they act to their children. Yeah, I like this one. This one is so cute, so adorable, so charming, so humorous. So, you know, everybody has a different nature. There are no two people, right? You could have two people and twin brothers, and one of them will hate somebody, and then the other one will love the same person. There's no... Everybody has preferences, and everybody has certain reasons why they just take a liking or a disliking to other people. Even their own children. It's almost natural in any family that a father has a certain kid who, you know, he has a certain uh, inclination to love more. And a mother also. Whatever it is, you know, that, that, that's mere conjecture why it was that Yitzchak loved Esav and why Rivka loved Yaakov. But nevertheless, says of Shanshal Hirsch, if the parents deal, allow their personal preference and their personal feelings and their personal likes and dislikes to affect the way they act to their children, no. The child, the way Rav Shanshafal Hirsch writes, the attitude of parents toward their children should not be influenced by personal likes or dislikes. It should be guided solely by a clear, intelligent sense of parental responsibility. It's, in a way, it's a very stoic approach, but it's important. In other words, you have to withdraw yourself and stop yourself from your feelings, from your personal feelings. Oh, I like this one, I don't like that. No, cut it out, stop it, grow up. And you have to be objective. You are the parent. And that really leads us to the fourth um, commandment. And this is a very difficult challenge. This is something I think that every parent faces. Where you allow your preferences. Oh, I like this one. This one is more like me. Right? Every parent has. You know, children have a little bit of their father, a little bit of their mother. And sometimes you see, oh, this one's going to be like me. And you have to stop yourself. No, it's not about you. It's not about what you like or what you dislike. It's about doing what's good for the child. And you have to sort of 
stop yourself from personal feelings. That is rule number three. And this brings us um, to commandment number four. So you take your kid to shul, and your kid's not behaving the way you would like, right? It doesn't, I know it never happened. But let's say, imagine, theoretically, if that happened. So what's your gut reaction? What's your first reaction? Oh, people are going to think that I'm not a good parent, or people are going to think I don't know how to control my kids. Usually your first reaction is, what people are going to say about you. But that's really wrong, because what does it have to do with you? It's not about you. It's about what the right thing to do is, what's the right thing to do for your child. Can the child sit? If the child can't sit, then send him home. Tell him, you know, he could go home now. Don't make him sit. And the child, in other words, I think we are all guilty of viewing children a certain way and we have to sort of change it. And that is, most people view their children as a possession. It's something that they own, something that reflects upon them. It's like their suit. You don't want to wear an ugly suit because people are going to think you have bad taste and you're a bad dresser. So the same way people drive a certain car or wear a certain suit or look a certain way because of the way they feel it reflects upon them, most people treat their children as their possessions. Right? You want your house to look a certain way because it reflects upon you. So you want your children to act a certain way because it reflects upon you. After all, they're mine. No, forget that. That's not the thoughts that you should have. That's not the attitude you should have. The attitude you should have is, they're my responsibility to care for in the way which is best for them. But, we are all guilty of viewing children as a kenyan, as a possession. Roshan Shinfal Hirsch has really an awesome idea. You know, we have Cain and Hevel. First two kids in history. And Cain becomes a murderer, and Hevel becomes a great Oyved of Hashem. And we don't find any information given in the Chumash about why Cain acted in such a terrible way, in such a, in such a vicious way. Like, what did Adam and Chava do? How did they spoil him? Says Rav Shamshin Rafal Hirsch, it was in the name they gave Cain. What's Cain's name? What did Chava say? Adam Yada, look at number 10. It's Chava Ishtai. Vatar, she can see Vatelet as Cain. Vatoymer. Kanisi ish es Hashem. I acquired a kid. I own a kid. And when you view a child as something you own and something that rever- oh, I better dress my kids well because I want people to think that I dress my kids well. Why do we always think about what other people are going to say about our kids? Because we view children as things that we own. And when you view children as things that you own then they start to view themselves as entitled. As people who, if they see other people have things that they don't have, they look at that with envy. They look at that selfishly. That if somebody has something that they don't have, it's like they took it away from them. Instead, says Abshashan Falhurst, let's read, instead of considering him as a supreme blessing that should make her aware of the awesome responsibilities of motherhood, she sees him only as a symbol of her personal prowess. In other words, children are not something we own, something we have, something that reflect upon us. A child is a matana from Shamayim. It's a job that God gave you a job to do what is best for this soul. Finished. 
Nothing to do with, you don't own the kid. He's not yours. He's not a Kenyan. That's where Kayan was spoiled. When her mother said, you know who you are? You're my Kenyan. I own you. I own you. Says Rav Shemesh Hirsch, when the child feels that all they are is somebody who sort of fits the parent's concept of something that could represent them, then the child begins to feel entitled and you can have a Kayan who murders his own brother. That is what we call commandment number four. To understand and to appreciate and to view the fact that a child is a responsibility and not a Kenyan. Okay. Let us move on to commandment number five. This is very important. This is critical. A no is a no and a yes is a yes. Meaning, you come home and you're tired and you're starving and you're cranky. And the kid says, could I? And you're really not in the mood of saying yes, but for no good reason. You got to be very careful. Because if you say no, because you're in a bad mood, then the kid starts to learn that no is whimsical. No is dependent on your feeling. So then next week when you say to the kid, I don't want to ever see you touch a cigarette, he says, oh, you know, he doesn't really mean it. Maybe he's just in a bad mood. Or maybe, uh, I don't know, he just doesn't like me. You better be very careful when you say no. Never say no because you're in a bad mood. And think carefully before you issue a prohibition to your child. You have to realize, if you're going to say no to something that doesn't really have a good reason for you to say no, I just don't want him to do it, then you've lowered what no means in his eyes. Because if he says, why in the world is my father not letting me do this? So the next time you tell him, I don't want you ever to do B, the kid says, well, he doesn't want me to do A, and it make, A makes absolutely no sense, so B also, it's not so severe in his eye. But when the kid says, you know, um, I want to do A, it's okay, nothing wrong with A. Then when you say don't do B, the kid knows that a no is a no. And then, very important. So you tell the kid, don't do this. No, please. And he starts whining and fetching and pulling on your arm and pulling on your leg and throwing a temper tantrum. Don't ever, 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 ever give in. Once you decide a no is a no, if you give in and you say yes, he'll never listen to you again. Because next time you tell him, I don't want to ever see you touching a cigarette. He knows you don't really mean it because if he just asks enough or he begs you enough or he bothers you enough, then he'll get you to say yes. So basically, you have to understand and you have to make him understand that when you tell him no, that means it doesn't matter what, you could stand on your head, you could lock yourself in the room and you're not going to eat a meal for three days. I'm never going to let you do this. But you have to watch out. Because says of Shantanalhurst, before you say no... If there's no good reason to say no, you make sure you always say yes. Make very strong guidelines what a no is and what a yes is. And if you decide something is yes, you're not going to change. And if you decide something is no, you're also not going to change. This way, when you offer that admonition, the kid will understand that you mean business. Okay? So that is rule number five. Okay. Rule number six is really where this year started. I heard this concept. It's an unbelievable idea. 
It's a really uh, new age idea. And this is an idea that is uh, brought out by the Makobar of Gamliel Rabinovich. It's the Mamish Mavel Arayan. So let's go to the Akedah, look at number 13. Yitzchak turns to Avram and he says, Vayoymer Avi, Tata, what's going on? Vayoymer, Avram says, Hineni, Bini, behold, here I am. Vayoymer. Yitzchak says, Hinei Ha'ishva, Eitzim, I see the fire, I see the wood. Where is the, the lamb? Where is the sheep? There's one word in this Pasuk that will change your life forever. Yitzchak says to his father, Tati, what does Avraham say back? Hineni. Behold, here I am. Does anybody know what the word Hineni means? What does Hineni mean? When the Rebbe Nishlam comes to Avraham and he says, When Rebbe Nishlam summoned Avraham to take Yitzhak to do the Akedah, what did Avraham say? Avraham said, Hineini, Zokhtarashi, what does Hineini mean? This is how righteous people respond. A language of humility. In other words, Rosham summoned Avram and Avram said, Behold, here I am. I'm ready to do your bidding. It's self-effacing. It's humbling. It's lowering oneself. Hineini. That's the word that Avraham Avinu says to the master of the universe. So why in the world, when little Yitzchak comes to his father and he says, Tati! Why would his father, why would Avraham say to Yitzchak, Hineni, behold, here I am. I am lowly. I am humble. I am ready to do your bidding. That's what you tell God. That's what you tell a king. That's not what you tell your kid. Doesn't your kid have to respect you? Don't, doesn't your kid have to honor you? Doesn't your kid have to humble himself in front of you? Why is Avraham telling Yitzchak, Hineni? Says Ram Gamliel Rabinovich, we see from here, Yesoid Atzam. That one has to speak to their children, not only not harshly, not only not strongly, you have to speak to your kid, Bederach Anova, in the humble way, like the Rebbein would talk to Avraham, like Avraham Vino would talk to Rebbein Shem. Gamliel, I spend my time being Oisek in Talmidim, in Bachrim, who have forsaken Judaism and gone off the Derech. And in 99% of the cases, it's because the parents did not speak to the kids. The parents disparaged the kid, put down the kid. You stupid, you good for nothing. What's wrong with you? Do you have any brains in your head? And the kids said, well, if my parents disgrace me, then forget the whole thing. Says Rav Gamliel, listen carefully. What we expect of kids today is nothing short of Akedas Yitzchak. You tell a kid, we want you to go to yeshiva, we want you to learn, we want you to work, we want you to stay away from Taivas Olamazeh, we want you not to partake of all the dirt on the street, the, the seduction of the street, the seduction of the outside world is so powerful, and you're asking a poor little kid to give it up. Says Rav Gamliel, that is a more difficult Nisayim than the Akedah. 
And if Avraham Avinu, in order to get Yitzchak to do the Akedah, had to speak to him with such humility and such kavod, like Avram spoke to Ibn Islam, then you can't speak to a kid any less. In other words, you need to speak to a kid in a way like they're a king. So you say, come on, that's a hacky, that's crazy. Sizren Gamliel, his mother told him that if the Torah was written today, it would not say in the Torah, Kabed Asavicha V'yasimecha, it would say, Kabed as Bincha V'yasbitecha. That's a Chiddush Noira V'ayam. That a parent has to be careful nowadays in the way they speak to a child. Should be bidach kavod, bidach anava. Doesn't mean you don't tell them what to do, but it's something that we all have to work on. You know, pull it down a tone, take off the edge, take off any anger, make it, make it. Think about the way the Avram Avinu responded to Rebbeinu when the Rebbeinu presented him with the Akedas Yitzchak. And try talking to your kid that way will probably have better results if you tr- you speak to a kid in a, in that type of respectful way. Again, this is not my chiddush. This is not my idea. This is what we learned from Ra- Rashi Hakadosh. This is how Avraham Avinu spoke to Yitzchak. Says Ram Gamliel. There's no wonder Avraham was able to produce a tzaddik like Yitzchak. The way he spoke to him, the kavod he gave him, the honor he gave him, the anivos he showed him. That's where Yitzchak came from, from a father like Avraham Avinu. Commandment number seven. This is the next week's parasha. Yaakov Avinu had the dream, and the Malach was sitting, the Rebunshim was on top of the ladder. And he said, I'm Hashem, Lekei Avraham Avicha, the God of your father Avraham, Lekei Yitzchak. And the God of Yitzchak. Frek the Chida, wait a second, who's Hashem talking to? He's talking to Yaakov. And he's saying, I'm the God of Avraham, your father? Avraham wasn't his father, Avraham was his grandfather. And I'm the God of Yitzchak? Yitzchak was the father, should say, Ani Hashem Lekei Avraham, why is Avicha by the grandfather and not by the father? Says the Chida. Because Avraham Avinu used to learn with Yaakov. And ever, whenever Yaakov came to the house of Avraham, Avraham used to say, Mein Shefala, Mamala, Sweetheart, Yaakovul, Yankila. Yeah, Avram Avinu would speak to him and call him in an endearing name. And he would say to Yaakov, My son, Bani, 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 Bani. And if you talk to a kid in that way, you're the kid's father. But if you look through the Chumash, Yitzchak never called Yaakov Bani. He just said, Hey! Hey, Reuven, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda. But he did call Esav Bani. Every single time Yitzchak has interaction with Esav, look at number 19. By the way, look carefully. The way Avraham spoke to Yitzchak is the way Yitzchak spoke to Esav. Look what Yitzchak says to Esav. Look at number 19. Yitzchak says to Esav, Lashon Anivos, Lashon. Zimon, here behold I am. Miata Bini. Yitzchak calls Esav Bini. You know how many times 
Look, take a look at this. He says, look at number Chaf. Every single Pasuk, Yitzchak refers to Esav as Bini. He doesn't refer to Yaakov that way. If you just call your kid by their name, you are not their father. God gave you the kid, and you've abdicated your job as father. You're not their father unless every time you call them, you say, my son, Shefala, Mamala, Ziskait. Otherwise, you're not their father. So Avraham was the father of Yaakov Avinu. Because he, when he spoke to him, spoke to him the way a father should speak to a child. Yitzchak didn't. So the Torah doesn't call Yitzchak his father. So try that next time. Try that. Remember that. When you speak to your kid, it's dripping with Ava every single time. Not sometimes, not a couple times. Every single time. Otherwise, you know, otherwise you're not their parent. Okay, number eight. Commandment number eight. Get ready for this one. Daddy, you know, everyone in my class has the latest model. No, you can't have it. Why not? What do you need it for? That's all. Kids do not need things. They don't need things. It's not good for them. Kids do not need to have things. They need a bed, and they need food. Okay, you're not going to get away not with, not with that, without giving them anything. But in general, do you want to know, is it good for kids to have things? The answer is no. Kids don't need stuff. Yeah, they need, they need to play. They need to have toys. They need to keep themselves busy. Says of Yaakov Emden, again, you have to have common sense and you need to have seichel. We're just giving a generality. There's a mission in Perkei Avais. Your house should be open wide. And the poor should be members of your house. Says of Yaakov Emden, it says your, it's saying the same thing twice. Your house should be open wide. And the poor should be members of your household. And you know, we understand. If your doors are open, why? Then the Aniyam are going to come in. No. So Zabiyakim is saying two different things. First of all, is your door should be open wide so that all the Aniyam could come in. And don't worry, you're not going to have enough money. You won't lose money. You're doing chaseh, Ivan Shalom will pay you back. You know what it means? You should have Aniyam in your house? You know who the Aniyam are? Your children. Aniyam? Yeah, so Zabiyakim Emden. They shouldn't have things. What do they need to have things for? They'll be better off physically, spiritually, without giving them excess. Says of Yaakov Emden, This is good advice for their soul. Be stingy. Do not give them too many luxuries. Make believe you're poor. If you want to know how to apply this, ask somebody bigger than me. But that's a general rule. It's a concept. Concept is that a lot of times I think parents think, oh, I, you know, I would like to give my kid everything. No, why, why do you feel that way? Why do you feel that way? Why do you have to give your kid everything? You need to take care of your children. They need to be clean, well-fed, give them a lot of love. 
Let them play. But why do they have to have a lot of things? Again, this is something that requires a lot of seichel. And uh, obviously, the parameters are uh, dependent on hakolafi, hazman, vahamakar. Number nine. So, you ever have sometimes a kid, they get into a stubborn mood, right? And there is nothing that you could do. The louder you say yes, and the more adamant the way you say yes, and the more forceful you are, the more they say no. You know, that's just the way, that's the way it is in the, in the physical world, even the law of physics. The stronger force you exert on an object, that is the force that that object exerts back on you. That is the way it works in the physical world, in the laws of physics. That's the way it, world, uh, it works in Ruchnias. In other words, the more the, you tell the Yitzhahara, I'm not going to think about it, the more the Yitzhahara is going to make you think of it. You, you can't fight head on. So here you have the kid. You say, go to sleep now! <laughs> Lots of luck, right? We want to say, hey, so you tell them, you want to stay up? No problem. You want to stay up another two minutes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they go to sleep. You have to like give in. You can't. But the, the concept of number nine is what we call joint responsibility. This is uh, Rev. Volba, one of the leading Bali Musar of our generation. When I was in Eretz I had this close to hear him speak a number of times. Rev. Volba, in, one of his, in his classic sefer, Zriya Ubinyan Bechinach, he says like this. So you have a newborn baby. And, you know, the, the kid who was the youngest until then is very jealous. You know, your mommy's not paying attention to him or her anymore, and uh, he's, not, he's not the focus of everybody's attention. So he starts to feel jealous, and he's going to lash out at the baby. So the Eitsa is, you want to make the kid your partner. Instead of the kid feeling that they've been rejected, you want the kid to feel that they've been promoted. And this, by the way, is in the first set of the Ten Commandments, where we find in Parshas uh, Vayetze, that it says, Yaakov Avinu gathered his brothers to gather the stones. So Rashi says, they're not his brothers, they're his kids. It says Rashi, Yaakov Avinu treated his kids like, like his brother. So what do you do to the kid? You tell your two-year-old, oh, you tell your three-year-old, we have a new baby in the house. You're going to be mommy's helper. So you know what you're going to do? You're going to bring the pacifier. You're going to help rock the baby. So now the kid feels they haven't been rejected. They've been promoted to a new status. Now they're not sibling anymore. Now they're like a brother or sister or, or a third parent. You know, I remember one time, one time only I can remember. Just joking. One of the kids were acting up. So I think my wife said, okay, you're going to go set the table now. And all of a sudden, like, he had this turnaround. Like, now he's not the bad guy. Now he's, he's, he's the helper. Now, obviously, it doesn't always work. <laughs> but sometimes if you give a, a kid a position of responsibility, even something you're not even sure that they could do, you know, something that they may not be even ready for, give them something maybe that's a little bit beyond them, but something that they're going to feel proud of, then they feel joint responsibility. They feel that instead of being looked down upon, they've been promoted to a position of responsibility in the family. So that's something that gives the kid, it instills in them, it ennobles them in their, in their image of themselves in the family. Okay, Marv Rabbi the last, the tenth of the tenth commandment, is possibly, and in all likelihood, the most important of all of them, Roish Verishaina, and that is, a parent has to daven constantly 
incessantly, every day, every hour, nonstop, that he should have the wisdom and he should have the siyata deshmaya to bring up his children properly. Why do you have to do that? Where do we learn this from? This is a tremendous insight. Everybody knows that if somebody kills somebody b'shoigeg, the person has to run away to the city of refuge, to the Ari Meklat. And how long do they have to stay there? Until the Kayin Gadol dies. So the question is like, what did the Kayin Gadol do wrong that they have to stay there until he dies? So it's like they're going to all daven that he should die. Somehow it's the Kayin Gadol's fault that somebody killed b'shoigeg. So the Gemara says that a Kayin Gadol, it is a Kayin Gadol's fault. Because the Kayin Gadol should, should have davened that this didn't happen. Well, he should have davened that somebody doesn't kill B'shoigeg? Yeah. Because if you're a leader, and you're responsible for others, you need to daven for everybody who is under your wing. Meaning, you could ask, does the Torah say that a Kohen Gadol is required to daven for every Jew? It doesn't say that in the Chumash. Do we find in the Avoidah of Musaf on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur that the Kohen Gadol goes into Kodesh Hashem and he davens that nobody should make any mistakes? We don't find that. But it's sort of implicit. If you're a leader, you need to daven for everyone you're responsible for. You need to daven that they should have money, they should have parnosa, they should be healthy, they should have nachas. The job of the Kohen Gadol is to daven for every single Jew. And if a Jew kills B'shoigeg, it's the Kohen Gadol's fault. Says Rav Bobo, we see from here, if you're a Rebbe in a classroom, it is your absolute achrayas to daven that every kid in the class be successful in their studies, be healthy. If you're a Rav in a shul, it is your absolute obligation to daven for every member of the shul that they should be successful, they should be happy, they should have money, they should have nachas on their children. And al-achas kamavakam, if you're a parent or a grandparent, it is your absolute responsibility and chiyov and achrayas to daven incessantly for the success of your children. That is your main tafkid. That's your main job. When? All day long. When you're driving in your car and you're walking down the street and you're dropping them off, that's your achrayas. How should you say it? You should make up your own nusach. Here on the sheet we have a, a nusach that the Chazoynish wrote for parents to say. But it's not something that needs to be um, legislated. It's something that is dependent on the nusach of every particular parent that uh, that it's our obligation and our and our chiyuv, our responsibility to in order to ensure the welfare of our children that we daven that the Rebbeinu should give us the siyata deshmaya to do our job right. So let's wrap it up. Let's review the Ten Commandments. Number one, you do whatever it takes. You could be unconventional, out of the box, whatever is needed for that particular child. Number two. You have to be attuned, you have to be aware of the inclinations, proclivities of every child, even if it seems slumbering, even if it seems minute, you have to be aware of it and try to harness it and try to, try to bring it along. We mentioned you can't have favoritism, you can't allow emotion, feeling, preference to affect the way you act toward a child. Number four, you have to understand the child is not something that you own, something that belongs to you. It's a responsibility that's been given to you. Number five. Who remembers number five? A no is a no and a yes is a yes. You have to make sure that when you say yes, you mean it. The kid understands that. When you say no, it is absolute. Number six, maybe most important. Hineni. 
Behold, here I am. Anivus, humility, derech kavod. Number seven, when you talk to your child, it has to be bechiba uviava yisera. Beni, beni, beni. Number eight. What is number eight? Hey, what? They don't have to have everything. They don't have to have everything. You said it. They don't have to have everything. Number nine, to give them a feeling of joint responsibility and position in the family, position of Achrayas. And finally, that one should always put in effort to daven on behalf of their children. And we hope the Siyad HaShanah Rebbe will be Mikabal, all of our Tfilois. We shall all have tremendous nachas from all of our children. Have a great evening. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.